Luke 2, 8 through 20. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of, a, of David, David, a Savior, has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told to them about this child, and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. Amen. Well, welcome, everyone. It's good to be with you on this second Sunday of Advent. And if you didn't grow up in a uh, liturgical tradition or a higher church tradition, sometimes they're referred to, that's true of me as well. I didn't grow up in a tradition that like named this season Advent. All Advent means is arrival. And it's the time leading up to Christmas Eve where we enter into the story of God's incarnation, the birth of Jesus, the story that Amanda just read for us today. And we begin to celebrate and anticipate and rehearse the story of God coming to be with us, of God moving into the neighborhood to be near us. And we celebrate this story every single year because we believe that it's worth telling. That God's nearness, God's proximity, God's incarnation, the revelation of God to us is a story worth rehearsing. But this Advent, we're going to tell that story or dwell within that story a little differently, a little less conventionally than maybe we would in traditional Advent times. Now, Sunday, we'll still have all the Christmas festivity that you are used to. You can see the beautiful decor kind of surrounding the building. Thanks to Haley, we have Christmas music marking our worship service. But our prayer moments, like our call to worship, our community prayer, our benediction, and then our teaching portion of the service will be marked by Psalm 23, which is not on its surface a traditional Advent prayer. It's a prayer from the Old Testament before Jesus has arrived. And so it might feel like a bit of a strange pairing to mix these two things together, the story of Christmas and the birth of Jesus, and also this prayer from David in Psalm 23. But I personally, I mentioned this last week, I really love to live in the Psalms during the Advent season because the Psalms are the prayer book of Israel. These are the prayers that they offered to God in their own lives. They were written from real experiences by real people. And as you read these prayers beyond Psalm 23, as you read all of the prayers throughout the book of Psalms, they are marked by hope and anticipation, 
by the tension of real life, of like longing for God to move and act in the world, and sometimes recognizing that God doesn't feel very present at all. These are prayers of people who have lived in the wilderness and come out the other side to experience God's goodness. And sometimes they are prayers for people who have not yet made it to the other side of the wilderness and are still marked by anticipation, waiting for God to arrive. And that is what Advent is. It's a season in which we say, yes, God has arrived, and yet we eagerly hope and anticipate and long for and expect God to move again. And yes, we celebrate that Jesus is with us and recognize that sometimes it does not feel that way. Even as the psalmist declares that it feels like sometimes we are in the valley of the shadow despite the good shepherd being with us. That's the tension and the beauty and the invitation of the psalms and the Advent season. Is so our bringing our whole selves into anticipation, our whole selves into longing, our whole story into this process. And something else I love about using the Psalms as a guide for Advent is that I, I think sometimes Advent can lose a bit of its like wonder, a bit of its mystery, a bit of its scandal, even. Uh, I love Christmas. Uh, it's been, this has not always been true of me, but I, I'm like, as the older I get, the more I like this season. I don't know if that's just what happens when you age. Uh, but I, I really like this season, but I do think something happens in Christmas season where the scandal of Advent feels a bit lessened because Christmas is very cute. Right? It's like a very storybook moment for us. You go to Target, you can find a nativity, you walk anywhere and there's Christmas lights. Everywhere you go, there's Christmas music and that's wonderful and totally fine, but I think in some ways it takes this story of Jesus that's marked by anticipation and longing and hope and protest and despair and triumph, and it makes it storybook and cute. But as we enter back into the Advent story, and you see how people prayed for Jesus or how people responded to Jesus, it is responses that are marked by something very visceral. When the Magi hear that Jesus has been born, they defy the will of a king to see him. We've made that a cute story, but it is wild and radical. And when that same king hears that Jesus has been born, he goes on a murder spree to stop Jesus's birth from happening. And when Mary hears that she is going to have Jesus, the Messiah, she offers a beautiful prayer about the overthrow of empires. It's not cute. It's not very storybook. It's visceral. It's powerful. It comes from real human experiences. And one of my favorite moments of people praying and responding to Jesus comes in this story when an older man named Simeon has been waiting for Jesus's birth. And he finds out that Jesus has been born, and he meets Jesus at a temple. And as he's meeting Jesus, he's like, well, I can die now. And then he offers this beautiful prayer. He says, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and to the glory of your people Israel. Simon, Simeon had, 
anticipated, hoped for, longed for, prayed for the birth of Jesus. It was not just a nice idea or a cute story for him. It was salvation. Light to the Gentiles, which for a Jewish man to pray is wild and radical in its context. It's such good news to him that he's like, yeah, I can go now. (laughs) When was the last time you had an advent so good you were like, I can die now? (laughs) And yet that is what the advent story in its first context is marked by. Hope and anticipation. Longing and the arrival of God. As I read these moments from the New Testament, these prayers from Mary like we read last week or the prayer from Simeon this week, I think the thing that hits me is just that I want to pray like Simeon during this season. I want to pray like Simeon during this season. I want to hope like he does and I want to anticipate like he does and I want to have a vision for what the birth of Jesus is like he does or like Mary did before him. It's bigger than often my acute story allows it to be. I want to press into this arrival, into its depth, in a way that invites my whole being, my whole person to pray and to hope and to anticipate. And that's why we're living in the Psalms for this season of Advent. Because I don't know another better way to like, teach us and guide us in this kind of hope and anticipation and prayer than Psalms. And especially Psalm 23, this famous prayer offered by the King David. It's a prayer of Advent, hope, and anticipation. We began this prayer last week, and we only looked at one verse, the Lord is my shepherd. And we stated in this moment that this is a beautiful declaration about God that centers David as he's about to pray, and that everything kind of that comes from Verse 2 on is a response to this first moment. The Lord is my shepherd. It's like an imaginative act to understand who God is, to imagine the goodness of God so that his prayer and his response can move forward. Today, we're going to look at the rest of that, not the rest of the passage, but the few verses that follow in 2 through 4. So I'm just going to read this really quick to get us reoriented. This is Psalms 23, verse 1 through 4. The psalmist writes, The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me besides quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his namesake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. These verses are beautiful and probably really recognizable regardless of how much church experience you have or where you come from. This week I was listening to, uh, this is maybe a bit of a confession, I was listening to Nicki Minaj's new album. There's a song on there called Blessings, just quotes the whole thing. This morning, Gangster's Paradise was brought up, another song that references the whole thing. It's a very familiar, very recognizable set of verses. And I think without any context or without any story, it also means something. It resonates within us. I think like, there's something that even if I've never been around sheep 
or I've never been around a shepherd, you kind of understand that there's this good news in here of a shepherd who leads his sheep towards restful, quiet waters. I think that resonates at a deep level no matter the context or story behind it. But for David, who is the author of this psalm, and for Israel, the people who first received this psalm, these words mean even more. They're loaded with significance and history and story. Because David and the people of Israel are a people who spend a significant amount of their life in wilderness both physically and geographically, but also emotionally and spiritually. They are a people well acquainted with dislocation, a people who are familiar with the kind of anxiety that can come from emotional or spiritual or physical displacement. Like they know what it means to pray for green pastures because they have experienced life outside of restfulness or quiet or stability or stillness. We don't know the exact context of Psalm 23. There's no like subscript that says exactly what's happening. But most scholars believe David is writing this from a difficult moment in his life. And David's own story is one marked by wilderness periods. He spends quite a bit of time literally in the wilderness fleeing for his life. If you read Psalm 63, there's like a little subscript right underneath the psalm that says, written from the wilderness of Judea. And what's not included in that subscript is that he's there because the king of Israel is chasing him down to kill him. So David spends a significant amount of his life in the wilderness, far away from green pastures, far away from quiet waters. And that's true in terms of like his own geography, but then if you just follow his story, after he sins and takes the Bathsheba, wielding his power against her, he enters into like a spiritual dislocation. When he's older, his son Absalom tries to steal the throne from him. He enters into like familial dislocation and anxiety. Those are not green pastures or still waters. He is familiar with wilderness. And as this is true for David, it is also true for the people of Israel who receive this psalm and begin to pray it. If you know the story of Israel, you know they spend 400 years in Egypt longing for green pastures of their own. God rescues them, and then what happens? They spend 40 years in the wilderness longing for green pastures and still waters. And then they get to green pastures and still waters, and they muck it up real good, and so then pretty soon after, spend 70 years again in Babylonian wilderness. Their story is largely marked by wilderness and shadows. These are a people familiar with dark valleys and know the feeling of being vulnerable. And Psalm 23 emerges from that experience. It is not a rosy picture of life, and it is not a cliche promise of ease or security. It is the prayer of real people who have had to rely on the guidance of God when it does not feel still or restful or peaceful. 
I love that about this psalm. I think sometimes when we first read a psalm or we first enter a moment like this in the Bible and you hear these kinds of words like green pastures and the Lord guides me, you can be like, well, that's not what life feels like. Or you can, it feels cliche or almost empty. Like, where is God in those moments? And if you were to say that, I think, to David, he'd be like, right. That's why I'm praying this. Because it does feel dark and wilderness. When we understand the context of this psalm, we recognize that David is clear-eyed about the reality of the world around him. It is a place in which he will experience shadows, wilderness, dislocation. There will be times in life that feel like we are passing through the valley of shadows, times when life feels dislocated, times in life where we feel vulnerable. David and Israel know this maybe better than anybody. The psalm has a clear expectation of that. And what is interesting or tricky about this psalm is that if you're reading it, it doesn't resolve that. The psalm doesn't say the shadow just goes away. It says there are moments when you will walk through shadow. Some psalms are prayers for rescue and petitions for rescue, but not Psalm 23. So sometimes you will walk through moments of shadow, and instead of promising rescue, this psalm states that God will be with you. And will give you rest. And I think that is really interesting. Kind of infuriating. But very beautiful. And I think what is interesting about that to me is that it is the times of shadow, the times of wilderness, the times where you feel vulnerable that feel the least restful. (laughs) I don't know if you've ever felt like particularly vulnerable in a season of life. I don't know that rest is the response I have. Normally it is anxiety. Times of shadow produce in me feelings of anxiety. They're the moments where I feel like I want to get my hands on the world around me and try to accomplish something or solve something. Like if I feel lost or if I feel like I'm in a wilderness position existentially, emotionally, if I'm actually lost in the wilderness, which has happened. (laughs) I don't feel rested in that moment. I start to worry that I will be left there forever. So I try to try to solve the problems. My anxiety surfaces and I begin to try to solve the problems. And what is so interesting about Psalm 23 is that the invitation is not for God to rescue you, for the problems to be solved, but instead for us to be present and to receive presence. And it reminds me of this moment earlier in the Old Testament when Israel is in their wilderness period. It's one of my favorite stories. I've read this before. It comes from the life of Moses. And he's like literally in the wilderness with Israel. They've been leading them through the wilderness, going to the promised land. And Moses is beginning to get very frustrated with the people of Israel. And he is beginning to experience anxiety around the people of Israel. Like, will we ever make it? Will they ever survive? Can I die now? Like, is there something that can change about the responsibilities that I have in this 
moment. So he comes to God in Exodus 33, verse 12, and he says this. Moses said to the Lord, you have been telling me, lead these people. I think there's probably a lot of tood in this. But you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name and that I have found favor with you. But if you are actually pleased with me, teach me your way so that I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this is your people. I feel like you can just hear the anxiety in Moses' voice. He's in the wilderness. They feel dislocated. They feel vulnerable because they are. He does not know when this season of his life will end. So he comes to God and he's like, can you solve this problem? Can you create some kind of solution? Can you remember me? Can you answer my prayers? And how does God respond? Verse 14, the Lord replied, my presence will go with you. And I will give you rest. There are times in life where we will walk through shadow and wilderness. And I wish that wasn't the case. But it is. And I notice from my own life that in these moments, my prayers often look like Moses's. They look like heavy petitions or requests. I want God to fix it. I want God to change it. And there's psalms for that. There's prayers all throughout Scripture where we ask God to rescue, we ask God to liberate but there's also another kind of prayer that runs throughout Scripture and runs throughout the Psalms, which is not a prayer that resolves the shadows or even answers the question of the shadows. Instead, it is a prayer of presence and intimacy. The language of Psalm 23 is so interesting in how it reflects this. Look at the movement that happens throughout this passage. In Psalm 23, at the very beginning, David addresses God. And in verse 1, he uses the word Lord, which is the Hebrew Yahweh. It's like the honorific, the most holy name for God. And he says, the Lord is my shepherd. And then in verse 2 through 3, something shifts and David begins to describe God. He says, he will lead me. But then in verse 4, something changes even more and David begins to say, you are with me. As David moves through the shadow, his prayer becomes more personal, more intimate. He's no longer talking about God or even beseeching the Lord. He's just talking to God. Something is shifted in this moment for David, and he becomes aware of God's presence with him and begins to address him in intimacy. Last week I mentioned one of the powers of prayer, I think, is the work it does in our own imagination. How we see and relate to God. We often want to believe that God is loving or kind or just or for us, but sometimes there's things in our own hearts or our own bodies that make that hard to believe. And so prayer is one of those practices that can help us center ourselves on healing images of God like the Lord is my shepherd or Jesus' prayer, the Lord is your father. So David begins this prayer in that kind of imaginative work. 
But then the prayer shifts a bit to another kind of prayer. To one of recognizing God's presence. It starts in this image of goodness and centered in who God is and then begins to shift towards what is God doing and where is God located. And from that image of goodness, it moves into presence, the recognition that God is with us and at work around us. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. He leads me. He guides me. Jesus' prayer, your kingdom come. Your will be done. You are with me. The ancient church called these prayers of invocation. We are invoking the presence of God. You've probably heard me pray a prayer very similar to this. I do it all the time where I say, God, we believe you're present. Would you help us see you? It's an invocation where you're like, we know these things to be true, but man, it does not feel like they are true sometime. We believe that God is everywhere, and we believe that God is all these places, and we believe that God is at work in the world around us. But a prayer of invocation is the kind of prayer we offer in the shadows when it does not feel like that, or when we do not recognize that God is at work around us. These kinds of prayers of presence are about trying to help us remember and see and be aware. God, you're with us, but help us see. These prayers of presence rooted in the goodness of God, what they do, I think, is they help center us as we walk through shadows. Psalm 23 is clear that there will be difficulty, that there will be periods of time that feel like wilderness. And so we root ourselves in images of God that are for us and pray God's presence around us, receiving and recognizing the reality that God is already at work in us. And we do this in the shadow moments because these are the moments that can be so hard to see God's work. When anxiety surfaces, that's the first moment that I stop paying attention. When my fear startles within me, that's the moment where it's hardest for me to see that God is gently a shepherd moving alongside of me. These prayers of presence root us in the shadow. My friend David Fitch says it this way. I think this is really beautiful. He says, prayer does not remove us from the world. It doesn't rescue us doesn't liberate us from the world, doesn't take us out of the reality of the world around us, but it places us firmly in the middle of it. I love that. Sometimes you are going to walk through shadow and it will not end and it won't just be resolved. Sometimes we have to be present in the middle of it. Even in the most violent, awkward, or hopeless circumstances, prayer opens space for God's presence and strengthens those praying to walk faithfully in that presence. The Apostle Paul actually makes a very similar point in Philippians 4. He says this, he's talking about prayer, he uses the same kind of language. He says, the Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything. But in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your mind in Christ Jesus. It's a prayer of presence. 
doesn't say that all things will be resolved. It just says the Lord will be near. And it is from that nearness that then the rest of our prayer flows. This is really transforming how I pray. I mentioned this last week, but lately the way that I pray is I begin with an image of God, something like the Lord is my shepherd, something like God is my father, often a picture of Jesus, something that can evoke in me a sense of God's goodness. I spend time just dwelling on that image, because the truth is, is even though like, I feel like I know a lot of good things about God, wounds, shame, fear, insecurity can still twist the image of God that is at the center of my heart. So even if I believe that God loves me, I can come into prayer and pretty quickly I can be like praying out of a sense of anxiety or fear about who God is or about what is happening. And so I center in the image, the Lord is my shepherd. It's gentle, kind. And then it moves from that moment into a recognition of God's presence, an invocation. God, you're here. I may not see you. I may not know that you're here. I may not understand what that means all the time, but I believe that you are near. Would you help me see? Would you help me pay attention? And it's from that practice that my requests begin to flow. And that's often what happens next. I just spill out a ton of requests until I start to feel a bit of anxiety again. And then I go back to the image. and I'm like, it's okay. What I notice is that I pray different when I believe that God is with me. And when I believe that God is good. I think this is what's happening in Psalm 23. It's not resolving, it's not answering a lot of the questions of our world. It is teaching us how to be present to God in the middle of our world. Now you might be wondering, what any of this has to do with Advent? And that's a great question. But I think like this psalm, Advent is clear-eyed about the shadow. If you read the prayers of Simeon or Mary or Zacharias that all accompany the birth of Jesus, they are clear-eyed about the reality of their world. And they are asking God to enter in, to come to be with them. And the Advent story is that he does. He gets so close. He moves near in vulnerability and in the form of a babe in a manger. And at first glance, it answers none of the questions of their prayers. How can this babe overthrow a government? How can this babe bring peace? How how did any of these things make any sense? In fact, the presence of Jesus with them is so startling that very few recognize that God has arrived at all. The presence of God moves so close in intimacy and vulnerability that he is hard to see at all. Psalm 23, to me, is the prayer of Advent. It is the story of Advent, the story of God's arrival. God comes into the shadow with us to give presence and rest. It doesn't necessarily resolve the shadow yet. It will, 
but we're still passing through. We live in the tension of the now. God is with us and God is guiding us. But I think the question to us is the same question it was to those who received the announcement of Jesus in the first place, which is, do we recognize God's presence with us? Do we see him in vulnerability and humility as he steps to be with us in the shadow? Do we know that he's with us? Do we believe it? And Miss here, as we close, since this is about prayer and praying through the Advent season, I want to do what we did last week and just invite us into a moment of like a practice of prayer. And so here's what I'm going to ask you to do is you would just uh, maybe shift in your seat a little bit, get a little comfortable, get a posture that feels, I don't know, easy. If you're willing, close your eyes. Nobody's going to trick you. Take a deep breath. Just pause for a moment. Messiah, the Lord is your shepherd. And he is with you. Do you believe that? God, we believe that you are here, but if we can be honest with you, which we believe we can, it is honestly hard to see you sometimes. Fear, anxiety, worry, shadows, wounds, all of it can play on our imagination and our minds and our heart to make it hard to perceive you. So God, would you move close? Messiah, the Lord is your shepherd. He is with you. Can you imagine God is near? Maybe things in your heart or in your life or in your story say that he is distant. You don't have to fight that right now. Just can you imagine that God is near? That in the shadows, in the wilderness, God comes to be with you. Messiah, the Lord is your shepherd. And he is with you. His intentions for you are rest. In the shadow. And before your enemies, he lays a table. Messiah, the Lord is your shepherd. And he is with you. Even we don't believe it or see it or understand it, God remains present. In our vulnerability, God becomes vulnerable. 
Monsieur, the Lord is with you. Monsieur, I just want you to hold that. And to breathe that in, this like hopefully growing awareness that God is present to you and with you here in this place, but everywhere you go, God is already there. Would you let it bring it to the table? The most famous prayer of invocation, the oldest prayer of invocation, comes as a moment of gathering at the table. The church would pray, that we would be present and aware of God's presence to us as he hosts a table before us. So, as you come to the table, as you continue to worship, and then as you leave this place, would you go curating and cultivating and holding on to the presence and reality of God's presence with you? Let me pray for us and we'll continue to worship. Jesus, thank you that you are present. You entered the world to be present, to be God with us, and you've sent your spirit to be present to us and in us, and you've sent us to one another to be present to you and with. God, it is so hard sometimes to recognize. And so would you teach us and show us and help us be aware of you today? Would you help us taste and see as we come to the table? And then as we leave this place, would we go your people who carry your presence with us everywhere that we go? To live and make space for you, for those around us. Lord, we pray these things in your name. Amen.